0: Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm, Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients, and in turn, how our clients view us. It is my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? I aim to bring my audience new voices from around our industry, interesting people with diverse backgrounds. Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. Hello, Anti Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Lance Amato, IIDA, lead AP, and partner at the Kanoa Supply Company, as my guest here on the Anti Architect Podcast. Lance is a graduate of the University of Miami School of Architecture, my alma mater as well, although Lance is a bit younger than me. Lance is a registered architect and a known and valued leader in the New York City interior design community, as he is the past president of the New York International Interior Design Association, IIDA. He started as an intern with Conant Architects in 2004, worked at Stonehill Taylor and FXFAL now, until he ultimately returned to Conant Architects, which eventually became VOCON in New York City, where Lance spent the bulk of his career until his new venture. At VOCON, Lance was a principal and managed a team of 60 architects and designers across multiple offices. During that time, he worked with major corporate clients such as Heinz, RXR, Compass, and WeWork. The WeWork experience as you will hear is key to Lance's next venture where he is a partner at the Kanoa Supply Company. We'll get into that a bit. Lance and I have a very similar passion when it comes to construction technology and how architects deliver projects. We basically think it's awful and needs a major kick in the ass. Full disclosure Lance's wife, Jessica Manamato, is a partner and the design principal here at Mancini Duffy. Lance, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. Thank you for the introduction. It's an honor to have you.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. Hopefully, I didn't screw that introduction yeah, you up did too something. much. You did an amazing job with the exception well, I may be younger than you. You look younger than me. <laughs> So, you know, that's a good thing for well, you. I don't know about that, but thank you. No, it's all you,
0: grow a, you grow you a great beard. So you, know, you know,
1: it's a lot of coffee. It, it ages uh, you really, really fast. I
0: couldn't get more than a week in the beginning of the pandemic. And I had to, <laughs> to get rid of the beard. So <laughs> um, so listen, our audience would love to get to know you better. Um, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about your childhood.
1: Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Long Island, but was actually born in Queens. Um, had a traditional suburban childhood childhood. Uh, and as many architects as you well know, uh, got stuck in the world of Legos, which eventually grew and grew and grew, built things like crazy, got into drawing, and just I knew I wanted to be an architect since I was seven years old. Okay. So, you know, my experience was really interesting uh, because when my friends were, you know, I'd say taking jobs at uh, you know doing stock at warehousing or um, fast food, I was interning in the city. At 13 years old, 14 years old, um, Atchison Doyle, a few other firms like that. And the, I would come in there, take the train, get up at six o'clock in the morning, um, do a full day's work, and then come back. And I wouldn't say I was doing, you know, architecty things. At that point, and now we're dating ourselves, I was blueprinting, <laughs> like literally blueprinting drawings in the basement of unventilated <laughs> rooms, but
0: yep. it was a great experience. Smell. Oh yeah. yeah, the
1: ammonia smell and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I lost some brain cells. Uh, in addition to the other ones I've lost over the years but um it was really a great experience you know it it prepped me for uh being an architect knowing the world of interiors specifically in New York City and and really really knowing what you want to do it was great
0: wow so at 13 15 13. years old that, yeah. that's incredible yeah yeah so no uh no you know lifeguarding jobs or anything like that just straight into architecture
1: yeah i sold watches one year but okay. I, that's great but every single year that's great
0: So, one of the things I like to ask of guests that have a a design background, and you're obviously known for that in in New York City, is can you describe your childhood home
1: in detail? I can. (laughs) I can. Um, So, as a tip, the traditional Sears and Roebuck house, uh, if anyone is familiar with Levittown in Long Island, East Meadow, which is where I grew up, is an extension of Levittown, which basically was consistent homes built off the same floor plan over and over and over and over again. So that was my house. It was basically a two-story gable house, Uh, couldn't be more than 1,200 square feet but it looked like every other house within an eight block radius Right. and uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. I drive through that neighborhood sometimes today and I go, oh my god, that's crazy. Do your parents still
0: live there or anything or is that all?
1: No, they retired down to Aventura.
0: Oh, nice. Good for them.
1: Yeah, good for them. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So, you and I both went to architecture school at the University of
1: Miami. Yep. Um, can you describe a bit about that education there? You know, it was an interesting education when I was going to school there. And I think we overla- we didn't overlap, but we had, a, what, a year gap, two-year gap? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing at the University of Miami was uh, new urbanism, mm-hmm. uh, reducing urban sprawl. Um, and really like orienting the reconstruction of the 15-minute walk, which actually is pretty interesting these days through conversations, the the, the emergence of um, hub and spoke mm-hmm. and what it was and what it, what it created us with the suburban um, distributed model. Uh, that, that conversation of the 15-minute walk to work is, is starting to really resurface. Yeah. Um, and it, the kind of the way and the approach that you you don't have to reconstruct an entire town, which was the the methodology and model back then in Florida, uh, to have that 15-minute experience. Now, there's a perception to reestablish Main Street in every single suburban town to create these kind of ancillary amenities and offerings for new business models and and, uh, retail uh, uh, offerings. Uh, So, people can commute to the city or just work within 15 minutes of where they live. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, so I I don't I didn't really appreciate I think that until more recently as well at, at the University of Miami because I remember thinking that number one it was a very traditional architecture school in that sense, especially when I went, when I started, it was all hand drawing, like the computer internet was just starting, right? Yep. There was, there was very little, but eventually it got into computers. And I had, I had a wonderful um, professor, Bronco uh, Kavorlik, who's now the Dean at um, NJIT, who was actually the computer lab teacher. And so he started to introduce the computers and things like that. But the whole idea of new urbanism, it's something that now I think I appreciate a lot more. Um, even in like the town I live, like we sought out a town where you could actually walk to things yep. as bizarre as that may seem. And, and back then I rejected it, it as like, oh, this is it was all going to be like Celebration, Florida, right? Which right. was where they filmed that movie. Um, uh, uh, Truman Show. Truman Show. Right. Yeah, it was sort of this fake town. Everything was a little fake to me. Um, but there's aspects of it that are actually you, you can really take with you into. And I agree, especially post pandemic. I can see that being something that uh, we look back to which is pretty interesting. Um, So take us through your work history from um, sort of Conant to Vaucon. You know, Peter Conant, um, you know, what did you learn from him? How would you describe him? I I knew him a little bit, Mm -hmm.
1: so. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I met Peter when I was 19 years old. Uh, I interned there for two years. Uh, Conan Architects at that point was six or eight people and it was a really fun experience. Um, in a small firm you learn a lot and I had my hand in in literally everything um, and probably got thrust upon uh, <laughs> responsibilities that I probably wasn't prepared for um, but I took every single opportunity uh, as an encouragement to learn more. Um, Peter himself uh, People usually say he is one of the more reserved and patient, but nicest humans you can actually ever work with. And that that, that actually is very true. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been closely connected with Peter for 25 years. Uh, and I still call him every so often. He is basically, like, I'd say my mentor and coach throughout my career. Wow! And the most amazing thing about Conan Architects and Peter is that um, there was a level of... Uh, I would say perfection and also astute dialogue he had with uh, C-suite people and, and, and clients in conversation that um, got those clients really, really excited about the opportunity of design. And uh, I really leaned in and listened to what he was saying and, and kind of blended my own flair to the way I pitch to people these days. <laughs> um, so, I should keep going, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So, after that, uh, as most young people uh, do, they go, oh, yeah. I'm bored with what I'm doing. I want to go do something else. Uh, So I did. So I went to Stonehill & Taylor. Um, Stonehill & Taylor, 30-person firm at that time. It has since grown substantially. Uh, They basically did hospitality and healthcare. And uh, at that point is where I started to delve into building code, which is actually one of my core responsibilities today. Um, The first three months, uh, I read cover to cover the 1968 building code uh, as it applies to like healthcare principles and egress and and uh, and fire separations and, and a whole bunch of stuff, um, and you retained it all, and I retained it all, <laughs> and I wasn't bored, which is the weirdest thing. Like I was like I, I actually fell in love with it. All right, that um, was a little weird, but it, it gets weirder. <laughs> it gets super weird Went to hear what I do now. Um, but I, I really loved reading code, and you know when you're 24 years old. And you can basically you know, visually understand whether travel distances are going to work uh, just basically off an eye check. It's kind of an interesting skill set. Um, but the one thing I did learn uh, was healthcare was definitely not the avenue I wanted to go um, at that time. Uh, it just was... I wanted more experience. I wanted to actually you know, practice base building architecture. And so, I was there a short stint and I, I jumped over to FXFAL, which yes. is now called FX Collaborative. All right, um, <laughs> and it was actually really great. Uh, FX fell at that time is 2006. Um, was one of the primary leaders in the USGBC and the lead initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce fell, uh, amazing guy. He he basically very politely encouraged uh, through. Um, through basically embarrassment, that everyone in his firm needed to be uh, licensed lead AP. And how he did that was he posted every every professional, every professional, professional's photo on a huge board. And once you got licensed, you would um, you basically get like a star or a color, you'd be, you'd be like hashed in. And so, the goal was to get every single person in the entire company licensed, uh, certified as a lead AP. It was so cool. And so, it was this huge, huge drive. Um, I did it. I uh, retained it, um, really loved it. And in general, like FX foul at that time was, was a super great experience. We were pushing, um, the understanding of sustainability, uh, lead practice, um, even other initiatives that, you know, were relatively unheard at that point. Um, Bird safe glass mm-hmm. was something that, uh, they definitely pushed. Uh, Which is so now code. It's code. code. That's yeah. right. Um, Bruce Fowl's wife, um, was uh, one of the primary leaders in um, basically pushing that forward. And I would say the best experience I ever had and the thing I learned and I knew I wanted to be a technical architect was a project that I worked on uh, at that company. And that was Covington and Burling at the new New York Times building. Okay. um, Which was getting built at that time. So FXFAL did the uh, AOR work of that. Uh, and also got awarded like the, the the upper half of the building for various uh, interior tenants, uh, and I got the ability to do work on that. and was It was crazy. It was it's a great experience, highly technical. Um, at some points, I was basically doing all the construction drawings for 130,000 square foot space by myself. Um, the one thing I didn't like about that project was I had to ride the exterior elevator. Oh yeah, which um, I'm deathly afraid of heights. A hoist, yeah. And I would basically cling to my life on the side <laughs> of the elevator, like putting my fingers in the grates. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to fall if this thing if this thing goes off. But I was I was scared to death of that. But it was super great. I, I actually locked myself out one time on the hoistway in the middle of the winter, and it took like two hours to get someone to come get me. Oh, that's but it, was, it was amazing. Um, I'm rambling. So so basically, uh, after that. Um, After coming to Burling, after the New York Times building was complete or mostly complete, they were sticking the antenna on the top. Uh, I went back to Conant, had a great conversation with Peter, uh, and was there uh, in some facet for a majority of my career. So, Conant was eight people. And it stayed that way, you know, primarily for about six years. So, it was eight people, 12 people. Um, We were doing mostly interiors work. Um, financial services, that type of structure, lots of one-offs. Um, I'm saying that cause will be more relative later on. Um, super great, new to detail. Um, started to, to get an understanding of what it was to, um, to build relationships. And, <laughs> uh, um, I say how to say politely, but monetize those things into projects is probably the best way to say it. I mean, there's no other way to say it. No, it's, it's part of the game. It's here. part of the game, right? Yeah. Um, and I started getting some small gigs here and there with showrooms and some small interior spaces. And it was 2012. Um, Peter and I went to dinner uh, and he was super transparent. He goes, you know, I want to leave a legacy. I want to leave the office doors open. But he basically wanted to leave within a couple of years. Um, and he was young. He was young. He looks younger still than both of us. which is Yeah, kind of crazy. He, he does
0: look really young. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but still young to retire for all. sell his firm essentially. And he did. He did. He. I'm gonna get this wrong. I know it. But um, <laughs> I think he started his own company when he was 42. Okay. And he sold it when he was 60. Right.
0: Ish. That makes about. That makes sense. Yeah, I
1: think that that's the right timeline. Um, but yeah, it was it was amazing. He, uh, <laughs> you know. That's that's in the use fire too. That was that was basically a quick job. Uh, anyway, so so we had that conversation, um, and he he said, uh, you know, I want to leave my doors open and leave the legacy going. And so we had a conversation. We said, well, why don't we uh, entertain um, merging with another company? Uh, so we we actually entertained a couple. Uh, there okay. was more than one. So you were part of this whole thing. I
0: was. That's great.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting. One day, uh, I was scouring (laughs) a couple of sites, and a friend of mine joined a company called Vocon in Cleveland. I was like, Who is this company, Vocon? Like, what do they do? And on the website, um, a lot of those things were encouraging, um, I'd say, company morale, uh, boosting culture, things of that nature. Uh, Had a little bit of fun flair to it when it blended design. And uh, with Peter's permission, basically, called Vocon and said, are you interested in, in <laughs> acquiring a New York City company? Uh, and they did. That's so, great. 2013, Vocon acquired Conan uh, Architects and it was kind of a natural growth in projection, um, propelled from senior associate to a director of a studio, grew that studio. And this is probably a good segue, but around 2014 is when I bumped into a small company of 12 offices named WeWork and that is it's a whole other story right
0: yeah so you end up doing a lot of, well back, back to Conant just a couple other quick questions I had so it you merged mm-hmm. so does that mean that essentially Conant goes away and they hire you all as um as employees of Vocon
1: was stock
0: traded, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, technically we all got rehired.
0: Okay. And did you have a hand in the financial transactions at that? Were you aware of kind of how it all worked? Yeah, it was really interesting. That's great. So that obviously comes back in later as you kind of now are on, on your own, essentially. Right. So what what from that merger went well and what didn't?
1: Nothing went bad. That's great. It actually went so fast, it was eight weeks from okay. start to finish. Uh, it was it was so quick. It really felt like it was the right fit, uh, and it was. It was it was a really wonderful experience.
0: So what's funny is when I had heard that you know you were now Vocon, I just assumed because at one point you were Peter, you we were with Peter Conan, it was Conan Architects, and I thought, oh my God, Lance quit. He's now at Vocon. Oh, yeah. you know, it, ha- it did happen so fast. Yeah. But to your guys' credit, I mean, you you grew that office, um, and I know that you also had some involvement on the West Coast. You brought in a lot of work. Um, you know, we would go up against you all the time. We were yeah yeah. like yeah. I, I would see you guys walking out. we were walking in those awkward kind of I love those though because I love the high when five I see hug. people yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know. uh, those are always fun. but I mean again, to your credit, you be, you became known as really just one of the premier interior guys in all of New York City. Why do you think you, why do you think your career took on the interior side more so than the base building side?
1: I've always enjoyed interiors, maybe because I'm, I'm impatient, but the aspect of, of creating uh, a space and doing so repetitively and, and at a rather quick pace, you know, six, nine months to build things out was always really intriguing. And okay. that was one of the reasons why I kind of shifted gears from FXFAL is, is maybe I just don't have the patience to spend time in a building three to five years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, one of our big projects here, we're in year six. Yep. It's got four more years to go. So, right. I mean, an entire decade goes by before you see the thing done. So, while at Vocon, one of your main accounts is WeWork. Mm-hmm. So, tell us a little bit about that. How did, uh, how did that happen? And have, you, have you heard, you heard you of WeWork
1: before? That. Have you heard of them I before? I have heard yeah. of WeWork. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, and,
0: I, and not all bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, WeWork uh, redefined my career. I really did. Um, I never worked at WeWork, but it was it was probably it was the client that kind of shifted me and my mindset as to where we went with Vocon and also what I'm doing today. So WeWork at that time, there was a, there's a lot of opinions uh, about them today. At that time, they were a bunch of you know young upstarts that had a vision to create something called co-working, which honestly. People say it existed, but it really didn't exist.
0: Yeah, that was Regis. There was a couple like crappy ground right. floor, you know, places where you could rent a room for a day.
1: Right. They weren't the first doing co-working, but they sh- they certainly had the flair to, to grow in such a way. And so the first few years um, of WeWork's existence, they were just taking spaces and flipping and flipping them. And uh, it just was the right time and the right people. In 2014, very funny story, but uh, I was calling and calling and calling this this one guy we WeWork to get an interview and a <laughs> meeting with them. Uh, we we our firm was twelve people. It was Vulcan at that time. We had one person that knew Revit. I shouldn't be saying this, but whatever. It's you know, <laughs> eight years later, uh, one person that knew Revit. Um, and I I I just I've always followed WeWork at that point. I really love what they were doing. I finally get this meeting. And sure enough, the night before, I get 102 fever and I am just like sacked out. The meeting was at four o'clock on a Friday. I was bedridden Thursday night. And so, uh, Jess, she goes, you're you're not going to that interview. And and I go, "Uh, I'm going to that interview. So, I just slam Tylenol, three cups of coffee, like (laughs) a tub of water. I I don't know what, I, I don't know what I was drinking in that point, but I just suck it up. I go to the city, I tried not to look like I was sweating and pale, and um, I meet these two guys, and they go, hey, guess what? We just closed our Series C at that time, or Series B, uh, and we're going to go national. And I hear that you guys have the ability to service national. And they go, I go, yeah, 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 definitely. And they go, and we're fully in Revit. You know Revit, right? I'm like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, definitely know Revit. And so, uh, I always tell this story. I, I used to tell a story uh, at the crew at Velcon. I texted the person that knew Revit. Uh, And I say, you weren't lying about being an expert at Revit, right? (laughs) She goes, no. I'm like, all right, get ready. Um, So, it was an amazing experience. We basically onboarded an entire firm uh, on Revit uh, within three to four months. Wow. uh, And we helped WeWork expand nationally. Uh, I was on a plane every single week for 26 weeks straight. I was Denver, Chicago, South Florida, Los Angeles, Seattle, Uh, San Francisco, Texas, just bouncing around. And what we were doing at that point was trying to prove to, frankly, the nation, um, but really specifically to landlords and building officials, uh, the premise of what co-working was and how it fell within the niche of the current building code. Uh, Because most importantly, co-working is an extremely dense uh, uh, space. Right. The density factors uh, to, to me co-working was 50, 55 usable square foot a person. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the building code, you know you know that base building code accommodates for 100, sometimes 150. Yeah. So we'd have to go in there and show these extremely dense floor plates to these building officials, present our case, say, this is how we want to do it. This is where it falls in code. Um, and we built. We built like crazy and at the end of that that great experience, um, not only the ability to utilize Revit as a tool um, for so many so many facets, it was pretty incredible, um, but also to enhance, I'd say, even the firm's perspective on how to do co-working nationally. We ended up doing, I think, three hundred and seventy projects of WeWork uh, wow. at the end of the day. Wow! Yeah. So, what do you think, in your opinion?
0: You know, I, I obviously WeWork is still a very viable business today. Um, what do you think, in your opinion, happened along the way with them?
1: We, we you know, we talk about that um, on a serious note internally. We talk about that. There, there was a year where things changed, and I think we all can kind of we pin it. Twenty seventeen is where we kind of switched up. It's where the core ethos of what we work was um, encouraging culture and collaboration through shared work environments. Uh, it started pivoting to. We need to open spaces to accommodate seats, and it went from design and approach towards that into open double your seat count this year, double your seat count this year. Right, like double, commodity, basically, double, 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 yeah, double. Yeah, and when you move that fast, it's things start to wane off, and you know you have to you have to answer to investors to do so the business plan to accommodate the investors you know projections was to open as many desks as possible it's crazy
0: right and then they had, you know, then all of a sudden there were stores, you know,
1: retail shops. And then oh, yeah. there was. Gym, store, yeah. we live. I mean, it definitely went off the, off the rails. We, are, yeah. Literally did. I worked in almost all those. Listen, we, we, <laughs> so. we had
0: a few people at Mancini Duffy that, you know, left to go work at WeWork, you mm-hmm. know, and it was like going to be the thing, right? And, and since then they've all, I always joke, whenever a, a company decides that they're going to have their own architecture department and do their own, you know, do their own in-house architecture, um, any kind of big corporation, it, it's over. Time to run. Time to not invest anymore. Everyone <laughs> thinks they can be an architect, and uh, it, it falls apart on them.
1: I'm going to say this one thing about this, and, and if anyone listens into this, that's from the WeWork alumni. There, you know, the people there was probably the, the most intelligent and innovation innovative group of individuals yeah. that ever collaborated on a, on a mission that I've ever seen, those those alumni that have shifted on to other parts of their, their um, careers are doing really amazing things. Yeah. Some of the things that actually, uh, that pertain to our profession and technology. Um, it was so overshadowed, unfortunately, by the position of one person, which right. well, I will not name. Uh, and unfortunately, I'd say a level of immaturity of how that person should project what WeWork was. Right. A lot of stuff was buried in there that never surfaced, which was amazing stuff that could have completely redefined how we practice on a day-to-day basis. So,
0: Yeah, and no, even one of the guys that that left here to go to WeWork is now at Tesla,
1: yeah. which is awesome,
0: you know, and, and doing a great job there. So I, I agree. There are... I was upset when we had lost those people to go to WeWork. I understood it for sure. And they were some of our best employees. So, but, you know, it, it, everyone moved on, which is great. And, and, and as I said, I think WeWork is a viable business still and, you know, can thrive again for sure. Um, so along the way, you know, now you're working, you're, you're obviously at Vocon, but you're working with the client of WeWork, um, you meet. You're what are now your partners mm-hmm. um, at Canoa, um, and at the start of the pandemic last year, you decided, "Hey, I'm leaving Vokan, and I'm going to go and do this startup." Yeah. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about that
1: decision, the story, and, uh,
0: and then let's let's talk about it. You know what what do you do now, and and what is Kanoa?
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, people ask me this question, <clears throat> and uh, when I when I when I moved on from Vocon, uh, a lot of people ping me, and usually, you know, ask me questions. There wasn't there wasn't anything I'd say, drama filled or risque in the reason for departure. I will I will say this: it's, it comes on a very personal note. Um, it's not easy to be a principal of an organization at all. It's an extremely lonely position, and the aspects of how much you 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 touch the practice of architecture um, it wanes like over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I loved my run of Vocon. It was amazing. I met some amazing people. But it did get to me. <clears throat> I wanted to to basically experiencing something different where I had a greater impact on the built environment. And I could do so where actually I had my hand in it and, and develop it. And so so the discussions about modular design and construction, the aspects of like Using technology as a facet to augment a professional and actually building those those tools was really intriguing and and quite honestly the people at Bo-Kan knew this like in 2019 I was having those conversations it's like I really we need to push this I want to do this I want to do this um, and I wanted to do it with them but it's 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 extremely difficult so. It was it was tricky because even prior to prior to the pandemic, um, as many know, some of our clients uh, ran into a wall with a couple of scenarios and it was getting really tricky. And towards the, uh, the beginning of 2020, um, I was having one of those uh, you can call it a midlife crisis, you can call it whatever it was. But as Epiphany, it's like I really want to shift um, my energy and efforts into trying to redefine, for one, the way that architects practice, um, two, delve into technology, which I thought I knew—I didn't know anything about until now—but and not even until now. There's so much to learn about technology. And three, actually practice sustainable means and methodologies and really push the barriers, like not be constrained by um, perspectives of you know pre-established budgets or uh, the opinions of some political you know reason. And so uh, at the time, Vocon. I wouldn't call it was, was stable at the time because no one was stable during COVID, but there was a window there. Um, and I had a very amicable and, and positive departure. Uh, I actually called up uh, the owner and CEO of Vocon on a Monday morning, uh, and she understood. Uh, it was very genuine. And I introduced every client to a person at Vocon for a transfer. And I still talk to all of them today. Yeah. Uh, and I talked to you at least like half of the office of Ocon, New York. Um, so, I moved on and I left uh, May 29th. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, the thing that weighed on me the most was leaving the people that, you know, joined up and we grew all the like we were Compass with. Right. Uh, I had a very emotional Instagram uh, moment <laughs> that, I, that I posted, which I don't do. Uh, and effectively, you know, June 1st, I, I started uh, as a partner at Canela, and we've been doing, doing what we do ever since. I want to, like, leave a gap there if you have any questions, though. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's a great transition. I do want to understand, and for the audience, too, you know, exactly what you do.
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing about this is there's a, there's a mission and a goal. But with any startup, you have to find your footing, right? So, the core mission of what we want to do is we want to build a sustainable, let me rephrase. We want to encourage the aspect of building sustainably across the United States, even globally. And to do so, we want to provide the tools and the abilities for any professional to do so in an effective manner where they're educated about sustainable principles, modularity, um, frankly, transparency in the process. Now, that sounds like a lot of words, but the reality in core the, the, the core, the core goal we're doing is to build a platform that is, frankly, a vertical stack model. That vertical stack model includes partners that, that kind of blend into it. But it propels a level of transparency in both the way you build things and the way you acquire things So it meets a level of, frankly, um, openness for, like, creating environments that are built for 30 years are carbon neutral, uh, can be constantly modular switch. Now, there's misperceptions that because we do technology, and yes, we do technology, we have automations in, frankly, layouts, engines, and and program engines, and things of that nature. It's we're trying to supplant the profession in some fashion. That's not the case at all. Right. Technology in itself is is evolving at such an exponential rate, um, even before COVID. And it's it's basically rising. And, and sometimes it's rising and surpassing the architectural uh, practice and going directly to clients. Like It is our goal and our right to help encourage that, facilitate that, and actually build upon those technologies to make our profession better too. And I'll, I, I seem to ramble right here, but the main goal is at the end of the day, and we, we always say this internally. We want to build 100, well, it's basically 100 million square feet of interior space, adaptively reused, not ground up, interior space that will truly last for 30 years at its core, but can constantly flex and move around on the interiors. That's what we want to do. Okay. How we get there, it's basically <laughs> technology, education partnerships, growth, most importantly, team. Team, 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 team. And sometimes we're gonna have to do it ourselves, sometimes we'll help people do it. It's it's kind of, kind of the trajectory we're going for. So give me an example
0: of a project in this particular case mm-hmm. um, that's done in this model.
1: Sure, so let's talk about ground floor activations. Mm-hmm. So uh, retail space. We all know retail space is kind of a, a very interesting subject. Frankly, retail was kind of going by the wayside already, yeah. uh, even pre-COVID. For one, the understanding that the ground floor in itself, what we perceive as retail as an industry needs to be completely changed. It, retail is not just selling clothes. It's, it's not. It, what the ground floor is, it creates the energy for pedestrian traffic to show up based on the premise, the amenities and the programs that they want at that time to then continually go to. Eventually, the occupation of the upper levels of the building that that ground floor um, inhabits will start to fill out. Now, over the last 30 years, clothing stores and coffee shops and restaurants were those things. And those still might be the case. But people need to listen and understand that the ground floor is more than that these days. The problem was, is that even pre-COVID, uh, the, the thought is, well, you were just going to replace the clothing store with another clothing store. It doesn't need to be the case. So how do you do that in such a simple facet? Well, for one, are there means and methods to leave the infrastructure or the core, the core of the retail space intact, meet code compliance and zoning code, but actually create modular systems inside the environment? that can accommodate a, a library or um, who, an urban farm. Who knows what it is? Right. All those tools and facets, they, those things can be developed. It's just a matter of creating the programs to understand it. There is still a place for the architect to, frankly, design and construct. The engineer to, to develop infrastructures and actually test new methodologies. Right. The interior designer to create the environments. But sometimes you need technologies to help make those things go faster. So what are you guys providing? In that
0: example, let's say it was a clothing store and it's 10,000 square feet or bigger and you want to put a library in it or something else. What, yeah. what does Kanoa
1: Oh, now you're going to get into the, the risk of So Yeah, what, what do you into. actually
0: <clears throat> produce? Is it a product? Is it a... Is it's it, it it's a
1: series of modules and products. So, okay. so basically, and those things are always changing. Automation, 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 super critical. So automation, uh, potential development of programs. So numerical programs, budgetary programs... F, F, and E, how it correlates the programs. So understand your budget before you even tap into stuff. It doesn't mean it's done. It means you understand as you go forward. Okay. Interpretations of zoning code and building code, they can happen. And we're not the only ones doing this, by the way. Is not, this is not like a, a new thing. Um, for easy deciphering, it doesn't mean it's done. It means you understand you're comfortable to move forward in. Got you it. still have to dive deep. Okay. Automated layouts, which is probably the most risque conversation we're going to have in this thing, can be done. And it can be done in such a way that the, you feel comfortable moving forward. Yeah, All that can be done literally within minutes instead of weeks from now. Yeah. And there are dozens of companies doing it at this moment. Even Mancini Duffy.
0: I mean, we, yeah. we are, we're doing that in a bit, not at that scale, but we're trying to automate some portions of it. I know Gensler is also doing something mm-hmm. like that you know, and and when you really think about it, it's just iterations on a theme. And if you can get to that sort of end result faster, then you have more time to actually design. That's right. Which has been my my whole thing here. We spend weeks and weeks going back and forth showing options, sometimes even showing options that we know don't work, just to show that we've shown options. Mm -hmm. Um, There's really no point to that, you know? And so if you can get to a consensus faster, um, but in your case, are you also providing budgets? Are you providing, you know, how from the sustainability side, how is it
1: sustainable? Oh, that's where it gets super cool. Okay, so so <laughs> um, so the answer is yes for the budgets. Again, high level. We call it we call it high fidelity in terms of that. We are boiling down as we get we do pinpoint more detail on specific products. So it gets gets greater in detail and more refined. But the cool thing about this is is the thing that I, I don't want to just skip over is that of. Carbon neutrality, health and wellness, and how the materials that you actually have in that space are impacted within the environment. A lot of that data is actually exists today, and there are companies that do that. They yeah. they they build upon whether you meet certain levels, um, your distance from manufacturing points, the assembly portions of what it is. The really important thing, and I would love to know if this is this is an answer here or not. You can select materials that are lead compliant. But do you actually truly know like the carbon impact that you have done on your interior space at the end of the day? No. You could. You could do it. You spend two weeks doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. and I'm sure that the fee's not that for that. Exactly. exactly. And so <laughs> wouldn't it be great and not com- like not contradictory or not computational to have a software tool that will help you understand that yeah. at like a very expedient time. Even honestly, if you have an automated layout, if you know you're over budget, like at the day one, instead of veing exactly three exactly. months down the line. Yep. Same thing with furniture. It's not like we're trying to like create like oh, click and you're done. You don't need this person. This person. No, you don't. It's not that. We're trying to help the system. Yeah. In the whole process. Um, but the carbon aspect of this, uh, the 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 health and wellness, there are other people, um, you know, within the world that are definitely tackling this. Some some more than us. What we're trying to do is bring it to that level. And like, really bring it up there okay. um, through simple means, through platform basis, things of like that. That's great. So, a couple
0: other questions about the the business itself. Um, did you guys raise money for this? Is it private equity? How how have you started this 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 process?
1: So, um, we raised a seed round. Okay. Um, three wonderful investors, um, and you know, we did it during COVID. Right. Impressive. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I didn't attend every single meeting. It was definitely driven um, by other partners at the company. Um, but I would say that was probably, I know from, they, as they say, one of the most challenging experiences I've ever had. Um, but it was great. So we raised our seed round. We closed December 31st of last year. Congrats. Um, and as many companies do, you in seed rounds, you kind of find your footing. You find your client, you find your system in the first year you build, and then you go up to Series A. And that's where you really, really, like, push the boundaries and keep going. So right. that's, that's kind of where we are right now. Okay. And, and client-wise, you have clients under your belt? We do have clients. That's great. Which is amazing <laughs> also. I mean, having clients and, and, um, and actually uh, having a seed round is amazing. The clients are very diverse. Um, we have healthcare clients. We have coffee shop clients. Um, we have clients that are in branding. Um, It's really exciting. The 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 kind of the core basis of even our client engagements really started in that premise of of ease for understanding the spaces through automation and technology. Um, Eventually, the sourcing of those products, um, I would say, a good handful of them are coming from secondhand uh, resources, which meaning they want secondhand inventory to to actually install their stuff, Um, which leans into this whole circular economy conversation, which. We were very educated in, but we're not like diving into it literally today. We want to establish ourselves. If we were to bring over, and this is kind of the core premise, if we were to bring over 2nd furniture and quality products, that is amazing. Um, sure. Let's do it. Yeah. It meets the mission, so
0: that's great and so with that mission one thing i noticed um from the website is that you guys are a certified b corp that's right uh, or pending certified b corp mm-hmm. so i'm i'm actually people at mancini know this i'm obsessed with this idea of b corp and making a service company a b corp could we actually make mancini a b corp um and so my question is what exactly is a b
1: corp and um Oh, you know, boy. what What are the what are the advantages for you? A CEO would probably know better than me at this <laughs> moment. And I, I don't want to sound uh, uh, miseducated at this. But frankly, B Corp is a, is a continual, is a corporation, obviously, that continually needs to prove that it meets a certain number of standards that are, are based on the premise of how you interact within the company as well as what you actually provide outside of the company. Right, right. Uh, and you have to continually do that. Over I know over. of a few, yeah.
0: like Patagonia. I yes. know is one. I know that uh, All Birds is one. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a few, and those are companies that I admire. That you know, I'm 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 very I'm very impressed that you guys are a B Corp.
1: <laughs> Again, it's all about it's all about the mission and the goal. What we want to do. Um, so, so part of what we
0: do here is take a critical look at how architects work with their clients, um, and as you and I have spoken about in the past, the process of how we deliver projects. Um, You know, I noticed from from the Kanoa website, uh, this is in fact, obviously one of your goals, um, and I I put it in quotes here in my notes, sort of reinventing the practice and building a healthier built environment. Mm -hmm. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. So let's talk specifically about architects and, and the, the industry that, that, you know, we're all in. Uh, in your opinion, what do you think architects do well and what do you think they do wrong and, and you know, is the process broken
1: in a sense? Uh, the process is broken. <laughs> End of statement. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's get into it. I think um, there's a really interesting... Architecture in itself, uh, it has fallen into consistency of what has been a 30-year-old traditional system of how the profession should be built. And over the, over the 30 years, over and over again, um, it went from architects uh, solely kind of controlling the system of how things are built, being involved into chair design and into even the engineering of what it is, and slowly parceling it away. So, and this is not new. You've heard this before. Slowly parceling it away, parceling it away. And in terms where it kind of boiled into uh, the practice itself has turned into this like commodity basis. Yeah. What we do well is frankly, through the outside, we are kind of the stopgap to create, um, frankly, compliant, life-saving environments for people to occupy. Like work, residential it is our job to prevent disasters in the world, prevent buildings from falling over, prevent fires and and people from not getting out in time, uh, materials and methods, things of that structure. And we do that really well. It's our job. It's overshadowed by the consistency of being productized and commoditized for like the dollars and cents and the dollars and cents of choosing into this and this and this. At some point, like we should really take a stand and go back into what we're supposed to do. Our, our job, our environment is, is failing right now. Like we are sitting in New York City. I have read 1099 ordinances over the last eight months. New York City is far above and beyond the entire United States. We have a drastic problem with the environment, and the way it's going to be built. And we have a very short time to do so. Our main goal is to design and build sustainably. We should not be tethered down by the bill rate or <laughs> the fee or the structure but we are and we're stuck. I, I can't say it was like that 30 years ago. Maybe I could. None of us were there at that point. Right. We need to to reemerge as that presence. And how we can do so is to actually combat that through the aspect of technology. You want to pay... X number of dollars for a fit plan, or do you want to play X number of dollars for me to construct a space that is above above the bar of California code? Now let me be honest. That client would be like, "Oh my God, I'm amazed! It costs five dollars for this, but three grand for this. Okay, I'll do it. Like that's that's super cool." But we're stuck in the consistent commodity of having to meet the baseline yeah. of the fit plan,
0: yeah. you
1: know, over and over again of the due diligence report, over and over and over again. Yep. And like, oh, that's built into the budget. There. Offset it. Shift those dollars and cents. Use the technology because we can do it today to do so. Again, I'm rambling at this point, but...
0: No, I think it's valid. And, I, and actually, just it, I, I think about it. You think COVID has actually helped the scenario in a sense?
1: Okay, this, this is an interesting subject. I think um, I'm going to say no. And you, you're, you're going to say why? Because we're sitting in a major city at this moment. Right? We're sitting in a major city where we're pushing the envelope and the boundaries. And the rest of the nation, I can very, very <laughs> confidently say, they're probably not thinking the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to enhance the wellness of buildings and structures. I will tell you in states today, people are still following energy code that use incandescent light bulb calculations to calculate energy code. Right. Can you even buy an incandescent light bulb calculation? Or new? I, I don't even right. know if you can get that anymore. Right. There's a and that still exists, and so we we need to and I know it's it's a step by step stuff, but we really need to like escalate escalate and push these baseline standards across the board. COVID propelled how we design the 15 minute walk and how we do so in major cities, the interior environments that needs to be pushed out extremely quickly to the rest of the nation extremely quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. So a few more questions about just architects in general. Um, Do you think architects and designers understand cost and budget and
1: schedules? And is that something that technology can help with as well? Okay, well, the the answer would be technology can absolutely help with the understanding of costs. We're afraid the the constant variations of costs as it applies to design and those variables, 100%. Actually, technology can calculate labor rates across the United States and wow. tell you how much uh, it costs in New York versus it costs in Arkansas. You can do all those things. You can design more effectively, check in more effectively, not wait two weeks to get things priced out. Actually do some level of confidence. It exists. Um, I would say that do architects understand budget? I Let's think about this one. Our architects actually told budgets a lot of times too. Is is I mean, one of the questions that I've always asked um, back in the day is like, what's the budget? And they go, and most people um, that are RFP and they go, it's like a it's like a midline budget. And they go, <laughs> okay. Um, what does that mean? I understand what that means. Right. So, are you going to tell me the budget at some point if you get the job? Okay. Um, <laughs> Do I know if I want to do this project yet if I exactly. don't know what the budget is Exactly. I think if architects actually had the tools and the resources they can understand it much better. okay
0: yeah I, I think that's a fair a fair assessment. Um, so at, at Kanoa, you guys are partnering with architects and engineers. How are you selecting
1: these companies? That's actually a really good one. Um, so one of the things that we're doing uh, in both facets, is we want to, and, you know, we're, we're less than a year old. We're celebrating our one year, um, uh, June 1st. It's to partner with with companies um, it, and basically professional services that are aligned with our theory. It's not necessarily we want the cheapest individual uh, at, at that basis, but to ask an architect, um, hey, we want your help in designing a canvas space where you don't have to actually redesign the structure of CDs for the next 30 years is kind of like, what do you, wait, yeah. what? I'm sorry, no, um, hold on. Uh, and the same thing with the engineers, it's like, hey guys, I want you to design a structure in a space um, that is basically built to last. And I can't tell you the program because I don't know what it's gonna be. <laughs> and they go, huh? But I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the interesting thing about it is, wasn't our goal um, in practice like to create timeless design such a long time ago. Yeah, it absolutely was. Like, wasn't it? Yeah. But we're, you know, the common lease nowadays is three to five years. Like, it's... People are just jetting their spaces and gutting those spaces every single time. It's not timeless anymore. Yeah. So, shouldn't we recreate the timeless experience again?
0: Yeah, and you look at some of the revitalization of like the TWA terminal, yeah. right? And you look at, I was down in, in Florida and in Miami, and we went to the Fountain Blue for something, and you know they restored all of that. And Timeless Design sells, it really does. And if you just paid a little bit of attention to it, as you're doing it and rather being caught up in, the, in the, the budget by 50 cents cheaper here and there, you do end up with something that is sustainable, good for the environment and even better designed along right. the way. I, I, I totally agree. So kind of uh, bringing it all back around, um, you know, if you had to do it differently as far as your career, what might you have changed along the way?
1: Interesting. <laughs> you know, I don't really... I don't really know if I would change. I don't know if I would change my my uh, my trajectory and goal. I think for me, taking the things I learned, would I probably encourage the ways and means to practice an architecture firm differently? I probably would. Um, would it be kind of welcomed addition, or would be considered kind of a <laughs> kooky, different type of company? Probably would, but. I think that there, there are means and methods from what I'm learning right now, specifically in in the approach of how SaaS companies work, mm-hmm. um, software and things of that nature, which are extremely relevant to financial and operational, um, even performance-based systems that architectural practices can definitely use uh, to supplant, I'm sorry to say, the traditional bill rate per hour yeah. methodology. Um and they can do so relatively quickly. It requires some tweaks, but in the end, uh, I think you can provide a more efficient, more transparent uh, and effective model for, for tracking those things.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great suggestion, a great, great way to leave it. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you know, Kanoa grow and change the industry. Um, I'll, be, I'll be watching all the way. We're watching. Um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for being here uh, as my guest on the Anti-Architect podcast. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed kind of hearing your story and obviously what you're doing now and, and, how, um, and how you're really trying to change, change the industry. Um, to see and read more about Kanoa, um, you can visit their website at www.kanoa.supply. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thank you it. very much.